Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, and I'm here today with a uh, special treat. I came across a, um, a colleague working on the issue of climate change um, from India. His name is Gopal, and um, you know, I thought it would be interesting to kind of give a different perspective that normally people, especially in the United States, don't get in terms of the new the regular news outlets. I mean, you just don't see what's going on outside in the rest of the world, how climate change is affecting people, and how it's being dealt with. So, Gopal, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. So, tell us a little bit about your background. What, uh, you know, where do you come from? What have you done? What's your What's your education? Sure. So, um, I was born and raised in England. Um, uh, to parents of Indian ancestry and uh, went to school and college, university in London. Um, and after graduating, I actually spent uh, about two years living as a Hindu monk. I spent hmm. one year in a Hindu ashram or a monastery in India on the, on the banks of the Ganges. And I spent another year in a Hindu monastery in uh, just outside of London. So two years of religious education. And then after that, um, I was speaking to a friend of mine at Oxford University, and he was starting a climate change program and asked if I would um, head it up. Um, so that was about 10 years ago in 2009, wow. and here we are. 10 years later, I'm still running that environmental program. Um, and the unique aspect of that program is that it focuses specifically on working with uh, religious organizations and specifically Hindu groups internationally, of which um, India is a, is a big focus of ours. So um, that's what I do, and um, I'm currently living in New York City. I moved over, over here um, to the Big Apple a couple of years ago, and I'm very happy living in um, Brooklyn at the moment. That's awesome. So it's, it's interesting, you know, you started in 2008, 2009, like the difference in 10 years, what's happened with the climate, like what's your take on the kind of pace of change in terms of climate change? Um, in terms of the understanding or in terms of the actual climate itself? Mm, that's that's actually two different questions, and that's good. So let's start with yeah. what the actual climate. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a climatologist. I'm not a climate expert. Um, but, you know, I think what we have seen definitely over the last 10 years is an increase in, obviously, global temperature, right? Global temperatures have risen over the last 10 years. Um, I think in the last um, eight years have been the hottest years on record, you know, ever. Um, so we're seeing record temperatures you know, globally. Um, and we've just seen an increase in global um, environmental disasters. Um, you know, just, just last year, or the last couple of years alone, in India we saw... Um, you know, horrible flooding that happened in the state of Kerala. You've seen record drought in the states of Punjab um, and globally as well. Here in America, we obviously saw you know record wildfires in California last year as well. Um, you know, heat waves in Europe. So over the last ten years, I think there's been a definite increase in um, climate-related um, natural disasters, um, and that's contributed to the second part of your question, which is the understanding. Mm. around climate change. When okay. we started this work 10 years ago, I'll be honest with you, um, there wasn't, we didn't feel there was a general understanding of climate change in, in civil society and, you know, mainstream society. Um, and at that time also, the science, people weren't really so, you know, you know, people weren't really so 
understanding of the science around it or believing the science. And definitely what we've seen over the last decade is that climate change now is the, if one of, if not the most important issue in a lot of people's minds um, across the world. Um, and we're seeing that people really understand that, you know, this is something which we all have to address individually and collectively and something that is going to, you know, impact all of our lives and livelihoods um, for decades to come. So the shift in the last 10 years from, you know, very little understanding and acceptance of the science to now it being, you know, one of the main things people are concerned about on a global scale is um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quick shift in 10 years. Um, but now we need to really do much more over the coming decades to really address this, this crisis that we're facing. No doubt. I mean, I think what was pivotal for me in terms of kind of embracing the, the issue was, uh, you know, an inconvenient truth. And I guess it really kind of popularized, um, you know, the information that was kind of coming together at that point. But it really drew attention to where the, the science points to the actual effects of what's happening and what's going to happen. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, so the inconvenient truth, there have been other kind of really prominent personalities, you know, celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. you know, who's been coming out talking about the environment. And the BBC for a long time now have been putting out fantastic documentaries, Planet Earth, yeah. and, you know, Nature, which is a new one that's just come out on Netflix. You know, so there's been this proliferation of, you know, in the public space of people seeing, oh, these are the effects and, you know, these are the um, challenges that we're going to face if we don't address them. So there's been this real shift, which is, which is really great to see, because only when that shift takes place in, in mainstream society does then, then become a chance for a political shift to take place to, you know, you know implement policies and, you know, and um, you know, move the political needle on this issue as well. So what um, you were mentioning, your, your work that you do in, uh, in India and the effects there, I mean... How is climate change perceived within India as as an issue? Is it like a like in the United States in the past couple of years? It's become actually a, a I would say in the past two years it's become a real political issue that people largely agree on. How is that kind of perceived in India? It's a good question. So in India, it's perceived in in different ways. Um, I would say that in terms of environmental issues, climate change, if you were to, if one was to take a general survey of the country, climate change wouldn't come top of, of a list of environmental concerns, um, but it would be very high up there. I think part of the challenge in India is that people are suffering so much from air pollution. So India has, I think, seven of the 10 most air polluted cities in the world. Um, India is suffering from you know, drought and water issues, food, so there are a number of you know, very critical life and death environmental concerns that people are facing in India. Um, but climate change obviously is the kind of the meta challenge, you know, that kind yeah. of holds all of these things together. Yeah. And so if you speak to educated, you know, people, educated people, people in the cities of India, you know, they are very much understanding of, you know, the effect that climate change is having on India and the fact that climate change is making all these other environmental issues so much more worse as well. So there's definitely an, an appetite and, you know, a, um, a need to address this issue. And that's definitely coming out from both the political class, the business leaders in India, um, spiritual groups and civil society as well. So there's definitely 
an acceptance that this is a crisis that India needs to needs to address nationally and globally as well. Um, I, you know, I watch Bloomberg twenty four seven. Is there an election currently going on in India? Yeah, that's right. Um, India, it's a um, country of one point two billion people, and so <laughs> getting them all to the polls takes a long time. So the election actually just started. Polling just started, sorry, voting just started a couple of days ago, I believe, and voting takes place um, over a two-month period, so it won't be till the end of May until all the votes have been cast and we have some sense of who's going to win the election. Gotcha. So, I mean, did this issue of, how did this issue of dealing with water and food and, and so forth come up in the campaign? Is it just a matter of politicians making promises that really they don't have a clue of how to deliver on or is it are there real plans that people want to put in place to kind of solve some of these issues yeah it's it's a good question i i was in, i was in india a few weeks before campaigning fully kicked off and i haven't been keeping too up to date with the, the campaigning you know there's um there are other political issues in the world that are kind of taking my attention right now brexit and so on being one of them but um what I did see was that there wasn't so much attention paid um, to environmental issues in India during the campaign. There was, again, because of the challenges of India being a relatively new country, only, only 70, 70 years old, you know, there are major development concerns or challenges in India. You know, people don't have access to education and to healthcare and, uh, and so on. So the development narrative is the is the largest and the strongest narrative in any political campaigning that takes place in India. Gotcha. And therefore, within that within that space, it's very difficult to push uh, an environmental narrative. Oftentimes, then, because the environmental narrative is oftentimes a degrowth um, narrative, which is wow. very yeah. necessary. Yeah. Um, so, to push a degrowth narrative in a you know in a, in a country which needs economic growth based on old fossil fuel industries and technologies, you know, that's that's a challenge. That that is a challenge. And so, the environmental voices, unfortunately, are not being heard. I would say at the highest levels um, in the way that we need them to be heard. Wow, that yeah, that's real insight there. I hadn't thought about that, but that's, I mean, that's what's driving the acceleration is you know this kind of disconnect between the drive to kind of raise people's standards of living based on you know the 20th century technology use of 20th 20th century technology and you know, the limitations of what we're facing in terms of climate. Yeah, and, you know, in, on the, you know, when you, if we look at the, the global climate negotiations that take place every year that, that I attend, you know, that's often the biggest sticking point is that the developing countries say that, you know, we still need time to develop. You know, mm-hmm. we still haven't got to the same level of, you know, Western Europe and America. Um, and so therefore India, China and other developing countries say that we, you know, give us some more time, give us more space because, you know, you other countries have had a head start and that's often the biggest sticking point internationally when it comes to the climate negotiations. And, and you see that firsthand in India, you know, you go there, you see the poverty, you see, you see people diseased, you know, and, you know, they need healthcare, they need access to certain things. And unfortunately right now, we only have one model and as, as you said, it's a, it's a 20th century model of development and you know, and growth, which is, which is not adequate, in, you know, in this age of climate change, unfortunately. No, I mean, I would have, I would have imagined that people would have started working on a, a, 
a set of plans that really would leapfrog 20th century technology. I mean, in, you know, in, in terms of incorporating, you know, solar, wind, uh, you know, renewables and so forth in terms of advancing the economy without, you know, the baggage that comes with, you know, fossil fuels. Right. And in India, one thing India is doing very well, and this is something that our organization is working on strongly at the moment, is is work on renewables. So um, you know, from, a, from a financial perspective, India is the, I think it's the number one or the number two country in the world to invest in renewable technology. Um, just because the uptake is is very significant, yeah. um, and that's right across right across society. I mean, we we did some research last year that looked at how religious institutions in India are using renewables, and we found that right across the country, all major religious denominations and groups are using renewables in their places of worship and associated buildings and facilities. And so there is there is a significant uptake of renewables in India, and like I said, it's the first or the second best country to invest in, in, in for that. But it's just not being rolled out on the scale that it needs to, to, you know, at the moment there are about 200 million people in India that don't have access to, um, don't have access to stable energy, electricity. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately the quickest way to get energy or electricity to 200 million people is to use, you know, coal and, you know, and all the old kind of technologies. Yeah. Um, because, because the solar technology is there, but it's just it's just harder because people aren't used to deploying that, you know, maintaining that, educating the villagers and people in rural communities about how this kind of energy works. And so, unfortunately, I mean, that's the kind of the bind we're in in India and globally that we have the money and the technology to address these issues, but we're just so wedded to using these old ways of, of doing things, which is which is really heartbreaking, actually, when you see the front line results of that. It is. It is. What um, you know, you had mentioned uh, water. One of the one of the main issues um, I know for India is going to be the melting of the glaciers in the Himalayas feeds most of the rivers flowing through India, and obviously has impact on the crops. You know, do you see that impact in terms of glacial melt um, affecting kind of the uh, volume or the quality of water that India is able to access at this point? Have I have I come across this particular issue of the glacier melt? And, uh, so I'll be honest and say I don't know much about that aspect of water, the water challenges in India. What I do know, the other side of it, and it may be connected. And again, I this is, I need to do some own, my own research in this. Is that according to government um, figures, uh, by 2030, so in 12 years' time, India will only have 50% of the drinking water it needs for its population. Wow. Um, so that's a huge, huge issue and challenge for the country. 1.2 billion people, it'll probably be around 1.4 billion people by then. So 1.3, 1.4 billion people and only 50% of the water they need to drink. So that's a huge issue that, you know, I don't see any work, really meaningful work in the Indian, you know, in India to kind of resolve that issue. Um, and then, you know, the glacier melts, you know, you know, and so many people, you know, like, the river Ganges, for example, when that runs dry, which it's going to because of, of climate change and increasing temperatures, you know, millions of people depend on the Ganges for livelihood um, and to feed feed the country. And so, you know, this is a, this, the, the water challenge in India is, is a huge, huge challenge. And it just, it's, it's just made so much more worse by increased development, increased urbanization. Yeah. 
as we know, as urbanization increases, the use of natural resources increases as well very quickly. Um, so that, that, that the water challenge in India is, is, um, is scary to think about. It's very, very scary to think about. You know, there was, a, uh, there was an article um, in Nature magazine, I believe it was like a year or two ago, where um, a group did a study where they looked at the economic impact of climate change on emerging market countries. And basically what they forecast was by the year 2100, um, emerging market GDPs would fall by 75%. And the main reason that they attributed that to was actually because of elevated temperatures and the impact that does in terms of limiting um, people's ability to actually work, um, you know, on higher temperatures. Um, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, it's heartbreaking, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, we, we measure things, unfortunately, in GDP, but the reality of that, what that means is that people are going to suffer. Yeah, people they're going to starve, they're going to die. Yeah, yeah. people are going to die, essentially, that's what that means. Yeah. And... And, then that, and that's why we need to, you know, there's this thinking right now that we need to shift to what they call an ecological ecological civilization. You know, we need to shift the way we live, the way we work, um, where we're in harmony with nature and harmony with the natural world. Um, and that shift needs to take place quickly. And unfortunately, I would say, and many people agree that, you know, we're a little bit too late. You know, the, the kind of, the, the bus has left the station. You know, I mean, we're, we've, We've passed the point where we can stop climate change. We're now in this phase of it's going to affect millions of people. Well, it's going to affect every single person on the planet, but some more than others. Yeah. And we have to become real about that, and we have to work out, okay, it's going to affect billions. People are going to die, but we have to fundamentally reorientate and reshift the nature of civilization to, to deal with this new reality. Um, and that and that's challenging. You know, I'm, I, I give talks regularly to students, and it, it's hard to speak to young people um, who are apprehensive about the future, even here in the West. Um, and then you bring in this aspect of like, well, will they even have enough food to eat? You know, can you buy a an apartment in New York City when you know it may be flooded by the end of the century because of sea temperature rise, mm. sea level rise? You know, so these are like really interconnected, almost existential questions that, that we're facing globally um, and it's there are no easy answers unfortunately how do um, when you're talking you do a lot of work with spiritual organizations um, yeah. how does this conversation work within the context of dealing with people's kind of spirituality I mean is it a matter of the, the that spirituality becomes a kind of a uh, bulwark of let's roll up our sleeves and get to it or is it a matter of kind of this is just fatalism this is just the way it is yeah it's um it's a bit of both i think it depends on which 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 um leaning of spirituality one has you know um you know because there's something for everyone and some spiritual religious traditions are more hopeful and more upbeat about saving the earth and others are much more, you know, accepting of the nature of reality and that everything is suffering, you know, and so there's a spectrum there. Um, you know, I think, two, I would say two things that we find though across the board generally. The first is that every spiritual and religious community that we engage with in India and internationally as well, 
accepts that as part of their spiritual and religious practice that they have to care for the earth. Um, that's just embedded in every single major religious tradition um, that we have to be, whether it's good stewards or caretakers or you know whatever the framing is, that we all have to care for the earth and that there's a spiritual and religious responsibility born out of every single tradition in the world. Um, so that's, that goes on, on, you know, no one challenges that idea. And then the other piece is that, again, everyone accepts that we speak to that the climate challenge is essentially a challenge of values and of spirituality, that the climate crisis is a result of greed, is a result of overconsumption, and that essentially at the heart of the solution to the climate crisis is a spiritual solution. That we can only rebalance the world, we can only rebalance harmony to be in, you know, in alignment with the natural world is if we have a revival of spirituality and values and a, a, a renewed understanding of what it means to be human and a renewed understanding of what civilization means. Um, and that, again, is across the board. Every single group and tradition that we work with say that this is a spiritual crisis and it's, and it's having to, con- and everyone is being confronted with what is the meaning of life? You know, why do I need to do certain things? You know, why does society dictate, you know, that I buy certain things or go to certain places or wear certain clothes? So all of these things are being slowly and will increasingly be questioned by everyone in the world as the climate crisis intensifies and the spiritual communities are understanding that this is almost like this is their calling, yeah. um, that they have to bring this message to the public space. Um, yeah, yeah. So, well, one of, so one of, um, I completely agree. And, um, you know, one of the things that I would say is, you know, I had a conversation with somebody uh, within the past couple of months, and we had talked about, you know, the, the issue or the problem is that, you know, everybody has a different historical background. They have a different... Um, they don't have shared history. They don't have they don't have common knowledge that is shared that creates the empathy that's needed to get to the other side. And because we've been divided by the system for so long by, you know, the creation of these, you know, different wants and needs, you know, it's it's become crucial for us to kind of create those those connections again. One of the things that I think has happened, I know at least in in the past year in the United States, I think when you look at like what's happened, you know, with the California fires, what happened in Houston with the flooding, you know, uh, Sandy, what it hit New York, you know, all of a sudden within the space of a couple of years, you have all these people saying, hmm, it happened to me too. So it's, it's not it's going to happen to somebody else. I don't have to worry about it. I think more and more people are kind of drawing the connections that this is a me too kind of thing. So sadly, I mean, but that's, that's where we're getting to is, you know, the experiences that we're experiencing is going to have to kind of create this common connection as quickly as possible. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely true. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think for a long time, I remember growing I, I grew up in the UK, as I mentioned, and I remember growing up, 
you know, it was always another part of the world that experienced famine or drought yeah. or environmental, you know, natural disasters. And it was never, it never happened to the UK. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, anyway, the UK is kind of interesting, you know, where it, where it is geographically speaking, but, you know, there have been record summers there over, over a number of years now recently. And, and I think as people start experiencing these challenges, um, they'll start connecting the dots. Um, but I also think most interestingly, and I think importantly, for young people who are growing up in a very interconnected way through the internet and social media, they're immediately, you know, there's a generation of people across the world who are, who are, I think, growing up with, even if it's not a lived shared experience, but like they're sharing experiences with each other. And so the, pe- the young people in India are understanding of the challenges of people in Africa and the young people in you know, Louisiana are understanding understanding the challenges of people from you know from Haiti and, and so on like that, and so there is this sharing that's going on globally through through the internet, and despite all the challenges that the internet brings to to social cohesion and so on, it is bringing this sense of shared concern and this shared spirit that we have to work together to address these common common concerns that we have. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, it just does away with geographical boundaries. Yeah, and it, it's it's so beautiful to see. We've done a number of climate trainings globally. We've done one in Rome. We did one in Brazil. We did one in um, New Orleans. And we bring together people from different parts of the world, young spiritual leaders from different parts of the world. And it's amazing. As soon as they meet, it's like they're family. They've never met before. They're from different communities and different spiritualities. But they have this common shared upbringing um, and it's and it's kind of blows your mind to see that young people can be so much in community, although they've never seen each other before. And yeah. I think that's really hopeful for this challenge that we have of climate change, which is which goes beyond nation states and goes beyond the kind of the political concerns that our politi- politicians have. You know, I think the young people can really be, uh, well, they will be the catalyst to to address this because we've obviously failed. You know, yeah. we obviously have failed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it becomes a matter of you know their leadership in terms of I guess redesigning the system in terms of how we deal with each other economically, so we can kind of extract ourselves from these traps that we've constructed. Right, right, yeah. They'll they'll they'll, um, they'll create the new ways of living and being. And you, know, you mentioned you know and and finance. You just mentioned that so a couple of years ago, something that maybe of use of interest your listeners is that two years ago the UN approached all the major religious and spiritual organizations of the world and asked them to develop um, faith investment guidelines for their respective communities and so those were endorsed and you know released by the UN a couple of years ago and so you know now if you're if you're if you're a Hindu or if you're a Buddhist or if you're a Jew you know you can go and you can find how to invest your money um, according to principles that are aligned to your spirituality or religious practice, but are also beneficial for the environment and development of the world. Hmm. Um, and, and I know that's something that's born out of this new trend of, you know, how do we align our decision-making in the world so it's good for the world, but it's also aligned to our values and our spirituality as well. And so that's something that we've been working on as well, specifically within the Hindu community, is, is faith-consistent investing for for development, and um, it's it's a really interesting new trend that's emerging in, in religious communities internationally. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, my work really focuses on socially responsible investing. And, you know, the the encouraging thing to me is, you know, the the people that I talk to are not your typically your tree huggers or, you know, your radical lefties, what have you, but, you know, just regular people. And when you approach it from a standpoint of like managing risk, like these are the risks that are out there and we have to adjust to them and deal with them and be proactive in terms of the decisions that you make. Everybody gets it. People get it. You know, it's, you know, in some ways it's rocket science and in some ways it's not, you know, it's just a matter of making a conscious decision to, you know, act better, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and I think what's, you know, what's disappointing, but something that needs to be highlighted more is that, you know, there are, there are places I know in New York, at least, where you cannot get home insurance if your home is within X number of feet from the ocean. Yeah. Because the insurance companies just know that it's not worth insuring your house, and you know, the, and the big oil companies, the big fossil fuel companies in the world, you know, they they have done the risk analysis of climate change. They know it's coming, and they know how it's going to affect their bottom line. And so they're already managing their risks and their you know as financial assets to ensure that they can still survive in in the climate change age. So you know, unfortunately, the people who have the knowledge are kind of keeping it to themselves. But I think, you know, like you're saying, the work you're doing is like really, it's like, it's not rocket science. And, you know, the average person on the street is now understanding also that there's a risk involved in the world now when it comes to climate change. And I need to mitigate that risk um, and also make sure that my investments aren't contributing to those problems as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, what would you say... To people in the United States, like what could what could be done on our part to help people in other parts of the world, um, like India, that are struggling with issues around climate change? It's a good question. It's a good question. I never thought about it so much before. Hmm. I think okay. One thing. So I'd say one practical thing. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Two things. The first is that I think those of us who have the privilege or the honor or the responsibility of living in a so-called developed country, um, our, our carbon footprints are, are too much. You know, they're, they're too big. Um, and we're, our carbon footprints are taking up space for other people. Um, and so I think there's, a respons- there's definitely a responsibility for us in the West to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, and science shows that the three main things that an individual can do to reduce their carbon footprint are to, the first is to, you know, adopt a plant-based diet. So that's, you know, mainly vegetarian or vegan diet. Um, the second is to travel less by air. And the third is to, you know, switch to renewable energy in your homes and businesses and places of worship and just to cut down energy consumption at home. So food, travel, and diet, food, travel, and energy are the three main things anyone and everyone can do in the West to reduce their carbon footprint. So I, I would say that's one thing. And again, that gets back to just being conscious of the choices right. that you're making and right. not necessarily choosing something that's bad, but mm-hmm. choosing something that's more positive going for the long term. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's healthy to like yeah. 
science again science has shown it's healthy to cut meat reduction and eat more plants and fruits right i mean that's not rocket science yeah uh, you know, so these things are, you know, these things aren't done begrudgingly. They're done in a joyful, happy way because, you know, they make us feel good. You know, when we make, make making hard decisions is not easy, but when we do it, you know, there's a joy that comes from that. You know, there, there really is. And so, so making some, you know, some lifestyle change changes that we can all do. Um, and the second thing I would say is collectively, you know, you're talking about America. I mean, America is still. For so many people in the world, it's it's that it's the leading country. It's the it's the beacon of freedom and hope in the world. And unfortunately, due to policies in the last in the last couple of years, you know, America is almost shirking its responsibility on the global stage when it comes to, to climate change. So, so I think collectively, if if American citizens and America as a country can, you know, reclaim that position, and you know create that path forward for this is what the new world looks like this is what a clean energy future is um that would be so inspiring for people in india but people from all over the world as well because we're still in that situation as as america does the rest of the world will follow and that's still going to be the case for you know many many years to come and so the more america steps up um as it as it was doing previously it steps up again and takes that leadership mantle and takes it responsibly. Responsibly, India will benefit. You know, every single country in the world will benefit from that from that strong, empowered leadership that America can do, and I'm sure it will do again over time. Um, but I think that's also very, very critical and important that people living in America understand the global responsibility that this country has for for, for making that positive change in the world. Definitely. Um, you've spent a lot of time in Europe. Um, one of the one of the um, side effects of rising temperatures in 2012, there was a huge drought around the world. Food prices spiked and really messed up the uh, messed up Syria, and you ended up with the the crisis that yeah. developed in Syria. And as a result, you ended up with millions of really climate refugees as a result of the violence there. Um, what's your sense on how people deal with the a world where you're going to have millions of people that are effectively going to be climate refugees, whether they, if it's due to you know drought or to flooding or to submerged islands, what have you? Yeah, that's um, you know that's. It's good you picked that up because not many people know that that you know rising temperatures in Syria were one of the contributing factors to to the, to the civil war there. And research has been, and research has been done that shows that I think it's by every point one degrees that temperatures rise in a given country, there's a ten percent increase in the chance of internal civil war and conflict because wow. as as temperatures rise. There's more pressure on, like you said, natural resources, resources more yeah. pressure on food. And, yeah. you know, and so people, people who may be struggling already are going to struggle a bit more. People will start moving from, the, you know, from rural areas to urban settings because they'll feel like they need to go there to find jobs because they can't grow food anymore. You know, so this is, this is a, this, you know, I think, you know, you know going back to the, the question around the responsibility of, for religious and spiritual communities, I think this is going to be one of the biggest um, responsibilities that they, those groups have is is to really push the, the moral message that the world needs to open up and accept these climate refugees. Um, because the idea of closing borders 
um, in an age where people are moving because of climate change and they can't have, they don't have food to eat, they don't have jobs, and they can't, you know, feed their children. Like you said, millions of people are going to be on the move, you know, over the over the coming decades, and there's a moral need and moral urgency for countries to be more opening and more welcoming of those people, for sure. Um, because you know, you have islands in the in the Pacific and other places which are literally going underwater because temperatures are rising and these people have nowhere to go and they're going to need to go somewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's a responsibility in all the, all the countries of the world, you know, developed, undeveloped, whatever you want to call them, to, to accept people who are coming, not because they want to, but because they have to, because they have nowhere else to live. Yeah. Because the places where they're coming from cannot support human life anymore because they're too hot or they're too dry or they're too wet or they're too cold. Or they're too violent. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 No, I completely agree, and uh, it's it's a spiritual task that you know everybody needs to rise up for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I feel like we could talk for hours, and we've already uh, expanded uh, our time. Um, If somebody wants to learn more about the work that you do in terms of your organization, do you have a a website or an email that they can reach out to you? Yeah, so if they want to get involved in, or if they just want to learn more or get in touch, um, our website is called Bhumi Project. That's B H U M I Project.org. And that's the name of my organization. And my name is Golpal, so you can just email me at Golpal at Bhumi Project.org. And I'd be more than happy to hear from folks if they want to learn more or get involved. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, I'm glad you're in uh, New York. We'll have to uh, get together at some point and, uh, you know, talk in more, more detail and uh, grab some, grab some food. I'd love to do that. We'll get some good vegan food in New York City. I'd love that. All right. Thanks a lot for taking your time to uh, chat today, Gopal. Thank you. Thank you for your time.